I mean, I only talk about ego a lot because of the fields that I'm in. Like in architecture, there's so much ego involved. Like people will say, did you design that building? And I'll be like, mm. I designed it with people because I wasn't the one that directly drew all the details. Maybe I like led a meeting, led the general idea. I'm not the one that actually did it. Um, you know, there's lots of, there's contractors that built it, even though we drew it. So it is design is successful based on the team around you, not on the person. That was Tiffany Shaw Collins, and this is part two of my conversation with her. In part one, she talked about her Métis lineage and how integral it is to her craft and to her identity. In this next part, Tiffany talks about her preference for working in a collective, that the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts, and that her ultimate goal is to convey a sense of wonder and belonging in every project she's part of. So here's the second part of my conversation with Tiffany Shaw Collins. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. So you're an artist, a curator, and an architect. Yes. Which one came first? The artist, the curator, or the architect? Uh, the artist came first because it seemed more uh, viable. I mean, I've always wanted to do art and architecture, like since I've really since I was like four or five. But as I got older, I felt like I just wasn't smart enough to be an architect. So art was more natural to me. I felt like I could pass it easy enough. So I just went through my fine arts degree and sort of just took architecture off the table when I got older. But then after I got my fine arts degree, I came back from Nova Scotia where I did my, completed my fine arts degree back to Edmonton in Alberta to get married and to work in galleries. I felt like something was missing and I was selling, um, I was working in a commercial gallery where we we're selling artwork there. And I felt like I was getting tired of selling artwork to clients where I wanted to be the client. And that's when I started to realize that, you know, I wasn't really done. I, I saw like I would eventually take on the gallery. I would have children maybe eventually. And then I just was like, and then I'll die. <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> It's morbid. That is exactly where I went and I couldn't see anything out of it. <laughs> and so then I started to think about going back into architecture and I was talking to with one of my high school friends who does have an architecture degree. And I was like, I just don't think I'm smart enough. And he's like, well, you actually don't have to be that smart to do this. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, he was right. <laughs> and uh, so I applied and then I went to Los Angeles to do that. And I'm, I'm very glad that I did because once I, you know, architecture is more rigorous as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. It's very consuming. And so I had to kind of put art on the back burner for a while. And then after I got my master's degree and I worked in the field for a couple of years, I got pregnant for the first time. My husband and I finally decided that we did want children, if any, um, after all. And then in that maternity year, I decided I would explore my art practice and I went into an art residency. And then that's really where things started to really click because I was able to kind of bring those worlds together. And uh, I mean, I'd always done that, but I just wasn't able to like kind of create artwork and design together. And so 
I'm really glad that I was able to do both things because I can't kind of live without one. It's like my arm. I couldn't live without an arm if I didn't want, you know, I'm not making sense, but I couldn't do one without the other, essentially. Where do you think the the crossover in all that lies? I'm not really sure um, because when I'm doing architecture, I'll be doing like a building tour or a facility analysis, for example. Mm -hmm. And I'll be looking at like mechanical systems with a mechanical engineer to see if they're updated or outdated. And I have like no idea what we're looking at. I'm just like in a room just to like look at the walls, make sure that they're in good condition. And, and I'll hear like motors whirling or air vents blowing. And I'll just think about what, you know, for example, I was in a, this one facility evalu- evaluation in a, a remand, which is a facility where you, uh, where incarceration happens, where they get, they're in remand waiting for judgment or for sort of to move to prison or out of prison. And it's like basically a holding place for them for days or for weeks or for months. And in that mechanical room, I could hear this creaking of the fins of the, of the grills where the air was flowing in and out of the building. And it just felt like this could be an art installation for me. Like this was really about sadness and difficulty and, um, you know, I just kind of go there naturally. Mm-hmm. I can't separate those thoughts. And that just informs my architecture practice a little bit more about who are, who am I designing buildings for and with? And how do I bring out meaning in that? And so it's kind of nice to kind of go into both train of thoughts to bring out more meaning from each practice. Do you think that being an artist, a curator, and an architect, like, have made you better at each one individually? No, no, not at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes, I'm like, if I felt, I'm actually a pretty competitive person, which may or may not have come out yet, <laughs> but I just really like competing or like doing things really well mm-hmm. or like being a part of a circle where people talk about stuff, you know, and it's not that I want to be the best. It's just that I want to keep making stuff. And if I just did architecture, I feel like I could be so much further in my career. And if I just did art, I would also be so much further in that career. But because I do them both, I have to just go about it so much more slowly. And I feel like I'm always behind. But I can't do it any other way. I wonder if that is just the uh, the classic like artist in you, which is always going to be the biggest critic. Maybe. Or maybe I'm just, in fact, slow. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm feeling now that I'm getting to a point where I'm actually doing things in my career. I'm getting to a point where people are starting to know my name. I'm starting to see that it doesn't matter and it's not a race. It always just felt like a race to me. And now I'm starting to understand that it's not. I'm just learning to have a little bit more. um, You know, I I don't feel embarrassed to say it anymore where I would have at one time. I, I think I've just had a lot of insecurity. And after having children, I've started to shed that insecurity a lot more. And it's, you know, what, I don't really know what race I would, I'm in anymore. It's it's not there. Do you prefer to, to work in a more solitary environment, like a studio, or do you prefer to work in a more public environment? Oh my gosh. I love this question. I am such a collaborator, which is where the curation kind of comes in. When Julie asked me to come 
to Anchorage to create these installations. And we did these engagements to sort of see what's going on. I really didn't feel like I could create the work anymore because everybody's ideas were just so much better than my own. I felt like people really knew what they wanted to do in the city. Like when they're describing things like change, change in they, they, things, they want change in a positive way about seasonality, day to night. Those, you know, they know what they want to do. They just need to be, uh, they need to, to have an environment where they can create. Mm-hmm. And so I asked Julie if we could switch my role from an artist to a curator so that we can bring out more of those conversations and see what other kind of ingenuity exists. And she luckily agreed, which was really wonderful of her. We were able to find designers and artists and architects to come together and have these more really rich conversations about what the climate is in the city, where they want to go, thinking about future forward or future positive. And... I just so much more prefer to be in those rooms with those conversations than by myself Mm -hmm. reading about it in books. I would rather have these conversations between you and I than just to be by myself. Part of a collection. Yeah. And um, there's this other work that I do. So curatorially, I'm actually part of a collective called Otitsi One Contemporary Art Collective. We're a group of uh, indigenous artists and curators and designers where we actually just opened up an art center about a couple months ago in Edmonton, dedicated towards contemporary indigenous art. And we are not structured, so it looks like an artist-run center, but we call it collective-run center instead, where we don't have a top-to-bottom organization where we have like a president and a vice president. We just are all core members and we all have decision-making abilities. And if I don't like an idea, then we don't move forward. Or if someone else doesn't like the idea, then we don't move forward. We have to kind of all agree. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is really rare, but feels very right. This sort of consensus-based decision-making feels right. It's a slower process. It's not right for every organization. But this collective sense is something that I really lean into. Because often my ideas are actually not very good. (laughs) Like what? I just... I've gotten better at them, but I honestly don't usually have very good ideas. And when I'm in a room with somebody else, somehow they make the idea better. Like we kind of build off of each other and I kind of need that feedback to make it. And so even when I'm working solitary by myself on my own, like when I'm creating smaller objects or smaller art objects, I will use technology then to interrupt my process. Because again, I need sort of a feedback to kind of make the idea better and or more nuanced or more interesting and so i will use technology to kind of misshape the things that i'm creating or to interrupt or interfere if i don't have a collaborator like a person to do that Mm -hmm. my wife always says having another heartbeat in the room always helps and i uh i always like talk to our cats You know, like I always say that like the cats have helped me out with so many podcasts or so many articles. And that's what she always says is you just needed another heartbeat in the room. Oh, my gosh. That is so lovely. That is that is really sweet. I mean, it's even more to like there's more ways to celebrate that way, too. Right. Mm -hmm. There's more meaning. Um, That's just how I operate. I I do really love working with people who are good soul practitioners and whatever they do. I I always sort of really appreciate that. Just not my skill set. So. 
I kind of have to surround myself. If I'm not going to be the smartest person in the room, I have to surround myself with other smart people. So then at least we look good. (laughs) (laughs) So you've addressed land rights and land acknowledgement, land acknowledgement in your work. Can you talk about what practices and policies might be needed to help move us forward in recognizing indigenous communities and in co-creating with them? That's a really good question. I, I wish that I, I don't know if I'll have a good answer, but I think I have heard lots of people do land acknowledgements, like at the beginning of a presentation or um, just when they introduce themselves. And I think I find them always very curious because maybe because I don't even really know how to do them myself. What's nice is that people acknowledge that there have been people on this land for a long time. I think that's really thoughtful. That goes back to that collective idea that you're not alone, you're not an explorer. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of separate from this, one thing I found interesting about living in the States, like, well, Los Angeles specifically, was that when people talked about going exploring, they felt like when they're exploring somewhere new, they knew someone had already been there. But when you're in Canada and you're exploring the wilderness, you don't actually know if people were there there before. And so just in terms of hiking or something like that, like you really do feel this remoteness. And I think that when you do a land acknowledgement, it's nice to kind of go back further than colonial history to know that there's this basis of knowledge and information that goes back centuries or millennia. Mm hmm is kind of a wonderful thought that you're not alone. And it, for me, removes a bit of the ego, the individual. Um, So I think that's what I like about land acknowledgements. And when people show that gesture towards indigenous people, I think it shows that there's an openness for conversation, which is completely the opposite of what it's been like, you know, 10 years prior or five years prior to when people even know that land acknowledgements exist. So I think it's a respectful thing to do. And when you have indigenous people in the room, which there often are, uh, whether they're from North America or, you know, from, or Turtle Island, as people will say, or other places like New Zealand or Chile, people then understand there's an openness to other ideas. I think it, you know, when you go into like the bank or something and they'll say, we speak these many languages. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like a reference. It's like a nod to that culture. And knowing that this is sort of like a base root culture here that people have tried to tear apart and dismantle. This is like giving a little bit back, I think. Yeah, and I think it's it's much more inclusive than exclusive. Yeah, exactly. That's what I should have just said. (laughs) <laughs> well, we're helping each other out here. <laughs> <laughs> I like your answer better. How do you think indigenous worldviews and perspectives can be a bigger part of design and architecture? Oh, it goes back to exactly what you just said. It's more inclusive than exclusive. Indigenous perspectives usually are just around sort of whole systems thinking or, you know, generational thinking. And what a wonderful world where we could think about a place could be for our grandparents and our children, you know, whether you're related to them or not. So that things just kind of work naturally 
when you step up or step down in functions. And I think just this, it's really just a politeness, I think, rather than just advancing the one individual thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not easy to do. And uh, you have to kind of decide what you're privileging when you open it up that way. But it's also very humbling and kind of a beautiful process to think about something other than yourself, about how you would use space or see space or see design or experience artwork. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with separating yourself from ego. Uh And whenever you talk to or read something from or watch something from these spiritual people like, you know, the Dalai Lama or something like that, it's always about separating yourself from ego and realizing that you are part of the whole. Yes, yes. I mean, I only talk about ego a lot because of the fields that I'm in. Like in architecture, there's so much ego involved like people will say did you design that building and i'll be like "Mm." i designed it with people because i wasn't the one that directly drew all the details maybe i like led a meeting led the general idea i'm not the one that actually did it um you know there's lots of there's contractors that built it even though we drew it so it is design is successful based on the team around you not on the person like i know that you want a good team and you want a good leader, which I always hope to kind of be in those realms. It's not successful because it's just me successful because of all the people there. And I think that's that ego can kind of get in the way. And uh, particularly in architecture and also in art, like I, I really don't like it when if we have an exhibition and then I have to go to an opening, I really don't like going to those openings because people are like there to see me and I just don't feel comfortable in that idea. I'm happy to go to other openings for other artists, but if it's about me, I'm like, I'd just rather pass because I just don't like that spotlight. You don't want to be seen like that. No, I feel like it's like there's this procession, you know, people are there for you. And it's like, well, I didn't, I didn't really want to like, choose to have this moment where people kind of convene to look at my ideas all at one time. (laughs) I just, it feels odd and weird. That's why I don't like awards. I feel like that is, or has been kind of the mark of a true artist that you are genuinely interested in the craft rather than the accolades that come afterwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I want, (laughs) I do want recognition, but I just don't, I just don't need it like in those ways. Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm more interested in the conversation and the ideas. Um, I'd rather just keep making good work and just moving forward. But you kind of need the recognition to get selected. <laughs> you know, it's like I kind of know how it works. I just, um, you know.
what do you think has been the most difficult architectural projects you've been a part of? Hmm. I don't, I haven't really, actually, I've been really blessed. I haven't really been on any ones that I've been on that are really tricky. Like right now, for example, I'm designing a boutique lodge uh, for Métis Crossing, which is a place you can go and learn about Métis people in Alberta. Mm-hmm. And we did a gathering center for them last year. It's a deeply fulfilling project because there just is not a lot of Métis projects to kind of do in the first place. Um, but it's challenging because we're designing and constructing it at the very same time. But it is not, it's still a wonderful process. It's, it's difficult, but it's not, um, it's not unenjoyable. Mm -hmm. And I've never really been on any project that's not enjoyable. I think I always try to find things that are kind of, I think I love tough projects. I guess that's what I should be saying. I really love tricky, finicky projects because I'm always trying to find ways to find joy in that process or find information. So even if I'm working on like a parking lot when I was younger, that's what I would get put on as an intern. Um, I'd still find them like really interesting things, but I'm like, oh, cool. I didn't know cars had this radius or <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know you had to have this much spacing for someone to get out of a wheelchair. Like I'd always find something interesting about it. And it's the same with difficult projects. Um, I just really like to try and make them successful and interesting. Oh, you know, I, I lie. I think I have found when there's conflict between, if I find that there, if people fight in a project, that to me gets really upsetting. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of reminds me of family structures and then I start to break down. So I like to kind of remove myself a little bit if there is, if I'm with like, a project team that is sort of particularly rude or mean, those things really bother me and those can kind of catch me. Well, that kind of gets back to what you said earlier about kind of being in the, in the right atmosphere that nurtures creativity rather than an atmosphere of negativity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because uh, I think my family kind of really has some difficulty in them. And there's a lot of like toughness, um, like around poverty or drug addiction or alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so when I start to see those cues, like if I, I can kind of identify on a project when there's like maybe an alcoholic on our project and that can sometimes start to kind of unravel me. And so I kind of prefer not to know those things <laughs> because then I start making judgments and determine and then start setting up different kind of systems. So I think this is a little bit of the artist in me. It kind of starts to interfere into those things because I think too deeply and all that. For sure. And I, I feel like that type of element involved considering your past would just veer you completely off course. Mm -hmm. And it's not actually even my past. It's like my current situation. Like um, there's just lots of addiction in my family and I still have to kind of go to my job every day knowing about certain things in my family that I cannot fix. And it's just, I think work is a bit of a safe haven. And when I work in environments that kind of remove that safe haven, I just start to lose it. Mm -hmm. Can you describe your, your project with the Anchorage Museum? Yes, um, I would love to. So Julie contacted me and asked me if I would create some artwork or installations 
uh, for Design Week in 2019. It was sort of like a precursor or something that people could experience along with all of the um, programming that they would have involved with the conference of Design Week. And this was really through Seed Lab. And so they had programming associated with that that could loop into the Anchorage Museum. So when I was there, I think it was really under the guise of Seed Lab, but there was still Anchorage resources that we reached into. Um, so when I heard about the project, that's when I asked Julie if I could come and do an investigation on what the city is, because I'm a site-specific person, I'm a site-specific artist. Mm-hmm. And she said, yes. And I said, well, I feel like I need to do community engagement to understand what the temperature is, as I said earlier. So can I please bring my employer, Vivian Manask, who's really good at community engagement? And she said, yes. And so we came in May of 2019, or I'm losing my years, maybe 2000, yeah, 2018, maybe. Yeah, 2018, sorry. And she then you know it's this pandemic kind of makes me lose my sense of time I think. yeah i think it's doing that to all of us <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh so we came may 2018 which these wonderful workshops where we talked about talked to the community who were sort of connected to the museum and c lab and then we talked to people within c lab and the anchorage museum and talked about locations that would be really interesting in the city to, to talk about and we narrowed those down to a few areas where we could do some installations. And one of them was Anchorage Museum itself. Um, another one was uh, Ship Creek, that area, uh, because of the fishing that happens there, There's also the industrial development, and also that, you know, it's a port that gets utilized. So it's also about food security as well, or mm-hmm. just sort of security for the port itself. Um, we also talked about Whisper Faith Kovic Park, which was just because it was sort of an area uh, that was seeing more interest in terms of renewal and it's more of an urban context or sort of not an urban, but like a residential context. Kincaid Park was another um, choice as well, because again, those layers of history about um, this was known to be used for indigenous people, but then it's sort of like this really beautiful destination for people to go and have a relaxing time because there's limited uh, use or limited access for cars. It's more about walking trails and all that. Mm-hmm. And so we identified those sites and then we narrowed them down to three, which is just Ship Creek, Seed Lab, Kincaid Park, and uh, Seed Lab is with Anchorage. And then I came back in July. You can probably hear my four year old yelling in the background. It adds to the ambiance, <laughs> <laughs> a I sense know. of place. Sorry. I know. <laughs> He's upset because we're all upstairs and he's feeling alone right now. So we're going to hear him cry in a minute. Um, so when we came back in July after May, so we had went, came back in May, did some thinking. And that's when I talked to Julie about how I didn't feel like it was right for me specifically to do an installation. I felt like it was better if we reached out to the community and they came up with an idea and we sort of curated that. And... When we were doing those initial visits with the community and with people associated to the museum, and we met with some elders as well, they had they had talked about this one art installation that happened during the winter time. It was where people had come together and created these installations on the ice, 
And people talked about how it was amazing because they worked with senior artists from, from around the world. And Julie actually curated this a long time ago. And they were talking about how they loved the intensity of this quick build and how cold it got and then it froze and then it melted and all that. And people just really talked about that sense of community. And so I kind of wanted to create that a little bit again. So Julie agreed to that idea, which was amazing. When we came back in July, <laughs> there's my one-year-old. <laughs> Hi, Aurora. When we came back uh, in July, we, the Anchorage Museum and Seed Lab created a bit of a list that we invited to have these conversations. And then we showed them these different sites. And then they grouped up together. And then they thought about some ideas and they pitched those ideas. And then we talked about budget and whether it all worked. And then those artists went forward and created different installations on those three sites. So that's how that worked out. And yeah, it was really fun to see what they had come up with. They were really keen to kind of expose a history that had been talked about in those areas in a way that hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the intent was, was to kind of talk about climate, to talk about regeneration and history all together. And I think that they had really achieved that. Um, so Tidelands is one of the projects that um, Petra Settler-Smith and Karen Larson had done together and Buck Walski had joined them as well. They explored this idea at the creek where they were talking about the height of the water and the tidal waves and associated with the moons. And they were really talking about climate specifically. Mm -hmm. And they created these large shipping containers. It was very austere. And they tried to create this like lightness at the end of when you reach the edge of the shipping containers. And that was a really beautiful approach to thinking about environment and context. Whereas, conversely, there was another project in Kincaid Park. We had designers like Taylor Keegan and Nicholas Horn Rollins. And what they had really talked about was touching on the Denina history in the area, Mm -hmm. really specific to language and memory. And it was renamed by Aaron, who works at the museum. Aaron Leggett? Yes, by Aaron Leggett. And he gave it a Denina name. But it's translated to where we pulled up the Alutics. And he created a recording for them where you could call in to this number and hear the story by Aaron Leggett about this battle that happened between the Alutics and the Denina people. A bit of a dark past that wasn't always talked about. And so they did it on this one of the bridges that's really emblematic to Kincaid Park. They actually was really interesting as they created this beautiful ghost like imagery on the bridge with these large sheets of paper or sort of this paper that you gets used for building materials uh, for a vapor barrier. But it all got blown away the, the night that they had installed it the day before it opened because it was this huge windstorm that had come through. So it was really beautiful where they had come together, made this beautiful installation and parts of it kind of got taken away from it. But what was left in the end was still this really beautiful project. So you could just see this force of nature of these people kind of organizing. And then sort of the outcome that they anticipated had kind of shifted. But they pivoted really quickly. And the Anchorage Museum was there to support them. And so that was really a really wonderful process to observe. 
mm-hmm. one of the other projects, which is by Merrick Rainus, and he created a work at the at the museum lawn. What was really interesting about that project was that when we were trying to identify how to unify all these projects, we talked about using um, lumber affected by spruce beetles, because this directly talks about forest fires and climate change directly. We weren't able to convince the groups to use this material because it was kind of costly and it didn't make sense to what they were trying to do. But Merrick Rannis, he actually was able to create these beautiful structures out of this, out of this lumber. Um, the Anchorage Museum was able to identify where to find this lumber um, that was cleared. And he created these really beautiful ghostly um, installations on the lawn. And so it was nice to kind of see all those different projects come together and that we were still ultimately able to kind of talk about climate, future forward, and sort of the emergence of climate change within all of these things and as, as well as history. So that's what I really loved about that project. And I was really appreciative that Julie kind of let me step back. I wish that I had kind of come up with my own idea, but I just felt like everyone else's was better than my own. And so I'm really glad that Julie was able to allow for that to happen. I hope, I hope that it did have some impact on those who participated, but I don't know for sure if it did. So throughout all of your work and work that you've been collaboratively part of, what kind of message do you hope people leave with? Um, I've always felt like when creating artwork or even buildings or environments, it's really important to feel like there's something greater than yourself there. And I always sort of wanted people to feel like a sense of wonder and like to know that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. I think like more recently I've been saying that, which feels right. Like my brother, I don't always know where he is. I don't think he's homeless. Uh, I mean, he would never describe himself as that. But we often, <laughs> I'm sorry, you can hear all the kids. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit, but it's okay. I'm so sorry. Um, you know, you always, I always feel like even though he's not homeless, we never know where he is. And I, I always want him to have hope and be inspired. And I hope that he would like stumble upon these spaces and feel like he is not alone mm-hmm. and that he is worthy. And I just want everyone to feel that, specifically my brother. But I I want to feel that. So I want other people to feel that. So that's really a driving force between what I do and why I do it. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Music was produced by Keezy Baby.